Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finally this year, this hour rather, and for the first time this year, we're crossing over to our friends at the BBC. That's not the first time this year, goodness me. We're crossing now to our friends at the BBC to take a look at some of the events making international headlines. Pete Ross is our man on the ground today. Kia ora, Pete. Kia ora, uh, Emil. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you here. And uh, we begin today with news from the UK. Last week, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, announced his party was ditching its flagship green investment plan. Remind us, Pete, what is the policy being ditched here and why is this a significant announcement? Well, it's significant. And I think, first of all, let's remind listeners that Sir Keir Starmer's party, the Labour Party, are in opposition at the moment. But his party is way ahead in all the polls here in the UK and have been for months now. He's widely expected to become the next prime minister and probably by a wide margin. So some would say that should give him the confidence to be bold in some of his policies ahead of an election here. And just a quick comment on that. It's due to happen no later than the end of January next year. But many commentators expect it to happen sooner than that. That's up to the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Uh, I'm hearing now that it's likely to be in the autumn, but, but honestly, who knows? The main point is, though, that the Labour Party is way ahead in the polls and that by you turning on this flagship policy, Starmer has given in to the government's attacks on it. Now, to remind you, Labour's plan, it was first announced in 2021, was to spend £28 billion a year, that's an awful lot of money, on green energy projects like offshore wind farms and developing electric vehicles. We hear the phrase, you know, world leader or world beater in the UK all the time now, but that that would see the UK as, as taking a real step forward, a real leadership role, perhaps, globally. Globally on, on green initiatives. However, many had been expecting last week's announcement or last week's U-turn because in recent weeks if you've had um, big members or senior members of the Labour Party have been on television. Some of them have um, have not mentioned that figure of £28 billion anymore, whether, whereas others, such as Sir Keir, had still, had still been mentioning it. So there's some confusion as to whether the party was going to keep going in that direction. And as it transpired last week, there was this massive U-turn. Now, Sir Keir Starmer has insisted that he had no choice to, but to ditch the pledge, and he claims it was no longer affordable because the Tories had crashed the economy. Now, it's expected Labour will now argue that they have to focus on being seen as responsible stewards of the economy rather than committing to a spending pledge that opponents would regard as reckless and they could be attacked on in the run-up to this election. What is the response to that? I mean, you use the, the dread, that dreaded political phrase, U-turn there, which um, can be levelled as sort of an accusation in and of itself. But what has the response mm. been from um, from within the Labour Party or, or at least from pe- people who are ideologically aligned with the Labour Party sure. on the spec track? I mean, I think it's, I think it's, the important point you make there is the U-turn and how has it gone down? I mean, first of all... Um, <laughs> As I say, so so let's let's step take a step back for a second. Sure. Labour traditionally in this country, the, the Labour Party has been portrayed. I'm not saying this is the case, but it has been portrayed as less 
fiscally responsible, less fiscally prudent than the Conservatives. So very crudely, the Conservatives good with money, the Labour bad with money. That has been the argument in the past and the Labour Party has suffered from it. So Keir Starmer, despite having this huge lead, is is, is obviously doing his, his best, I guess, to try and address some of those traditional issues that the Labour Party may have had. And so he wants to be seen as fiscally responsible. In other words, listen, voters, you can trust me with your money. But also something, and, and that obviously resonates with, with most voters, doesn't it? We yeah. all care about the money in our pocket and, and how much we're going to have to spend, particularly these days as, you know, cost of living crisis is is happening everywhere, isn't it? But another thing that does sort of tend to have, you know, make people that, you know, casual political observers, if you like, or say voters that only really engage in politics, you know, as we come to the run up of an election, Mm. is that word U-turn. We hear it, it sounds negative, it sounds pejorative. And this was a huge flagship flagship policy. And he has now unequivocally U-turned on that. However, one thing that might play in his favour is the, the Conservative Party have not been shy of a U-turn themselves in recent years um, on the HS2 high-speed rail link, which has been ditched, on electric cars, mm-hmm. on uh, tickets, you know, railway decisions on the rails, lots of stuff. So, so I think, I mean, we will have to wait and see how it plays out at the polls. But he's obviously taking a political gamble here to go, look, I'm doing this U-turn at least a few months before, you know, voters head to the polls mm. to make a decision perhaps they'll have moved on from there and perhaps it's more important that they think of my party as fiscally responsible and that's going to do me better the other thing is again as i said he has this huge lead in polls and nothing is certain in politics mm. but it does really seem that this is almost like a parade to number 10 now but of course we'll have to keep watching it and there is still a long way to go and as i said Nothing is certain in politics. And that's the truth. Um, let's head now to Indonesia, Pete, and elections taking place this week on a massive, massive scale. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, some the you know some of the figures involved in the elections going on in Indonesia on Wednesday are pretty staggering. It's the, the world's third biggest democracy, um, and they're going to be voting for not only a new leader and a vice president, but also they're going to decide on twenty thousand representatives to national, provincial, and district parliaments from a pool of a quarter of a million candidates and there's over 200 million eligible voters so um, i think these are going to be you know significant elections internationally but quickly let's just talk about who the runners and riders are the incumbent president joko widodo he's known as jokowi um, he's constitutionally barred from seeking a a third term he's done his two two terms in office so it's on to the next the front runner in the race is defense minister probabo subianto he's a military man turned politician politician. He's also the son-in-law of a previous military man turned politician, Suharato, who was uh, Indonesia's longest serving president until he was ousted in 19, or he resigned in 1998 after uh, economic problems and you know uh, riots on the streets and stuff like that. So we have Porobo Subianto. Um, he's the front runner. He's got the backing of the outgoing Widodo and he is leading quite handsomely in the polls. Um, however, he has, this will be his third attempt at the, at the presidency, uh, presidency. He lost in 2014 and 2019. Main rivals uh, are 
pair called Baswedan and Gandra Pranowo. Um, they're both former governors, uh, but interestingly, they have claimed in the run-up to this, uh, to, to the election itself, that their rallies have been either disrupted or cancelled by what they call, quote, shadowy officials. So this points to an uncertain future, possibly, for the, the relatively fledgling democracy in Indonesia, depending who wins. So I think lots of people, lots of countries will be watching this one closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's head to Turkey now. And uh, President Erdogan arrives in Egypt on Wednesday for a two-day visit. He will meet uh, his Egyptian counterpart, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi there. What is likely to be on the agenda for discussion between those leaders? Well, drones. But we'll get to that in a second. I think the first thing to say is that the the, um, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he's going to be in Egypt on Wednesday and Thursday. And I think the first thing beyond discussing drones, which we'll get to, is, an embid, is a bid to continue improving ties between the two nations. That's after, I would say, you know, more than a decade of fractured relations. Um, They've been sour since um, Mohamed Morsi, the uh, Arab Spring, the Egyptian president, Mohamed Morsi, uh, when he was forced out, he was the democratically elected uh, and his democratically elected government forced out in 2012. Uh, Morsi was, of course, uh, leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Turkey supports the Muslim Brotherhood. Egypt now has classified that as a terrorist organization. The two countries have also been at odds in regional conflicts. They took opposing sides in the war in Libya that ended with a pretty uneasy truce and a ceasefire in 2020. Um, However, at the World Cup in Qatar in 2022, um, there was a landmark handshake between the two leaders and now relations have started to warm up again. Um, They have uh, restored diplomatic relations to the level of ambassadors in July last year and now we have Erdogan in his first first visit to Egypt um, since Morsi was overthrown over a decade ago. Lots of things that they are likely to discuss not least um, aid to uh, Palestinians in Gaza, possible steps could be taken to end the war but as I mentioned, um, definitely they're going to be chatting about drones because uh, Turkey has just agreed uh, in the last couple of weeks to sell a number of drones to Egypt. Well, these these Turkish. What is it about these Turkish drones? <laughs> why why why, yeah. why does everybody want Turkish drones? Do you know? Um, I've got a couple of ideas. I mean, they're low cost and high performing. Um, and I guess, you know, drones have been around for decades. Uh-huh. You know, they were first used by by the Americans um, for reconnaissance. But it is recent wars, particularly um, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where Turkey's flagship Bayraktar TB2 drone. I mean, they're, they're, they're so popular that that sounds incredibly technical and I wouldn't normally name you know, a, a type of drone or a type of missile or something like that. But I think it's beginning to get into the public's consciousness right. because Turkish drones are mentioned so often. And part of that is because, look, they're, they're lightweight and they're cheap and they're easy to produce and they work. And they also work in ways that, that perhaps some military experts didn't expect until they started to be used on the battlefield in places like Ukraine, where you know, obviously a much smaller force has, and it's not just down to Turkish made drones, but there's 
a lot of the fact that Ukraine has been able to repel and keep Russia out um, or, 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 you know, defend itself in the way that it has, has been down to these drones. And it's not just Ukraine that's benefited from them. They've been used in lots of other conflicts as well. Turkey now has contracts with over 26 nations. Um, Anchor's actually been quite surprised um, by the success, I think, but they're also proud of it because, well, two things, it's money for them. Mm. It's, you know, the, the, it's really driving their defence ministry at a time when, obviously, economies around the world are struggling. There is an uptick um, on that side of the economy for, for Turkey. But also, you know, it, it really bolsters Turkish influence abroad. You know, er, Erdogan is, is one of these big power men and it's given him more power on the world stage and has allowed him to kind of position himself between the East and the West as, as he has done on lots of issues, partly because of the fact that he has these cheap and, uh, well, these cheap drones. Pete, we've got about a minute left, but um, tell us very quickly about the Munich Security Conference and what we can expect from that. Absolutely. It's known as sometimes the Davos as defence, you know, world's defence uh, security elite attending uh, in the annual conference in Munich uh, beginning Friday running through till Sunday. Um, if this had, if we'd been chatting on Friday, I'd say, look, they're going to be talking about the, the, the confluence, the conf, conflicts, excuse me, that you would expect, the war in Ukraine or Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the war in Gaza. But I think the timing of this event is become even more significant given the comments by the former president of the United States, his comments on Russia over the weekend, where some would say he gave Putin a free invitation mm. to attack NATO allies in Europe. You, you remember he said that he would encourage Russia to attack any NATO member that failed to meet the alliance's target of 2% of their GDP. Uh, so I would say that Yes, Ukraine was going to be high on the agenda, the worsening situation in Gaza. But following those comments by Trump, they'll certainly be discussing that and the ramifications for NATO as well. Pete Ross from the BBC, thank you very much, as always. Thanks, Emil. Great to be on. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.